Church family, as we've been walking through James, if I'm honest, there are times when, when I get a pulse for what's going on in the world around us, when, I, uh, when it just seems as if there is a, a hopelessness, a despair that so easily can creep into our lives as believers. And there's sometimes that, that a little bit of the wonder can come in and go, man, should, should we be somewhere else in Scripture? James is hitting so practical on things. Does it seem far removed, especially when we're living in a day when we have real-world leaders tossing terms like Armageddon and nuclear warfare around, when economic struggle is real and hard, when we see certain freedoms infringed or potentially infringed upon. And, but then I realized this, and this is what I love about James. Now, no, there were not nuclear warheads in the first century. But he's writing to a church who's living not where they were, trying to reestablish livelihood, who are struggling in tough economic times, who are facing little, if any, favor in the eyes of the law and the government. And that's twofold for these believers because as Jewish believers, the, the Roman Empire would have given, really gave the Jews a lot of freedom to enact their own laws, so they'd be facing challenges from Jewish law as well as Roman law. And then I realized this, that just as we face hard challenges, so they faced hard challenges. And the reason that God is addressing so many of these practical issues in the life of the church is because He is not dead, He is on His throne. And because He is on their throne, there is hope. And no matter what the circumstances are that we face personally or we hear on the news locally, nationally, or globally, the reality is this, as His local church, as the body of Christ, because Jesus is on the throne and the end has not yet come, there is a mission of hope that we are to live out. And so James is addressing things that could so easily discredit our ability to live out that mission of hope, because here's the real reality. The only hope for this world, church family, is for people to respond to the gospel message that God has chosen to be proclaimed through His bride, the church. So in light of that, I ask you to turn with me to James chapter 2. And as we come to James chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 1, and James is going to up the pace dramatically compared to where we've been the last several weeks, going through only a couple verses of, uh, at a time. We're going to cover a lot of ground. If you're using a pew Bible, and we invite you to do that, if you don't have one or you forgot your Bible or using your phone's too distracting, it's page 1071. And if you're using the pew Bible, you're actually going to get to turn the page today because we're going to cover so much ground. So, James chapter 2, James is going to address one of the most critical issues that can damage the life of a church and the witness of a church to this world. Listen, uh, church family, to what the Word says. My brethren, my brothers and sisters, do not hold faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, literally with partiality. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty or shabby clothes, 
and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, ah, stand over there or sit down under my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He says, brothers and sisters, members of the family of God, do not be holding, do not be actively possessing an attitude, a spirit of partiality. In fact, that verb, do not be holding, can also in the construction say, stop holding. In one sense, it's a clear prohibition against something that could affect us, but at the same time, it also just flat calls it out. If there is any attitude of partiality, stop it. Stop. He says, do not hold our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, what what do we mean by personal favoritism? It's an interesting word that as best we can tell, the, the early church produced this word. It's a word that they birthed into the Greek language, and it literally means to to regard one's face. Now, that's really confusing in the English language. What do we mean by to regard one's face? It, It means to look upon somebody from an external perspective, and from the external perspective to make a judgment about their value, their worth, and their honor based on what you see. Says, do not hold our, our glorious Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom it says in Scripture p- possesses no partiality. Our Lord Jesus, if you're going to hold faith in Jesus, then church family, there can be no partiality. There can be no gazing upon someone from an external perspective and choose to say, you are of more value than here. Now, this, this is the central command for the whole passage we're covering today is do not hold partiality. But James drives it home with an example, and he, he gives this example. Hey, suppose, suppose that two people show up to church today. Two people show up to church. One guy pulls up in a Ferrari, steps out in his Gucci suit adorned with his Rolex watch, and he walks in. And another guy comes out of nowhere and flip-flops beat-up basketball shorts, a tank top, and hair that looks like it hadn't been washed in a year. And he says, suppose they walk in, and, and you look at the, the man, and, and that's the language here, by the way, when it says you, this man, and by the way, I hope you notice, it doesn't actually say he's a rich man. The assumption is he's a rich man from his appearance, which could mean he could be a total swindler, based in the text. It says, but this guy shows up. He's, he's, he's ordained with, uh, with golden rings, which, which were a sign of wealth. In fact, they've even found ring rental shops in ancient Rome so that if you were going to the local party and you needed to look important, you could go down, rent yourself a nice-looking ring, and show up and say, wow, look at me. I've got 10 nice gold rings. I'm of a lot of worth. And then it, the clothing there speaks of shimmering and shining, beautiful clothing that's sparkling in its cleanliness. So hence the Gucci suit and Rolex watch. I tried to think of something that was a little more 21st century for us. 
So suppose they walk in and, and you see the guy who's dressed really nicely and, and you make a value judgment. You go, wow, you must be somebody special. You are somebody important here. We have got, we're going to give you your own row. You talk about personal bubble space. You get your own row. And some of you remember back in the day when pews, they were all wood. They didn't have the cushions. We're going to give you your own row in the cushioned pew. And then you take the other guy and you're like, yeah, hey, glad you showed up. Why don't you stand over there in the back corner? Or better yet, it says, sit down under the footstool. And, and it's an interesting phrasing because you can't really sit on a footstool. You go, well, you can sit on an ottoman. Sure, you can sit on an ottoman. If someone's resting their feet on the footstool, that's what's implied. You're going to sit on their feet. No, really what it means is this. You either take their, hey, hey yeah, just, just find a place to stand somewhere out of the way or, or sit on the floor or in the buildings that they would meet in as synagogues, there would be rows that people would sit on, and then there would be a row for you to put your feet on. So you're literally saying, hey, to the guy who looks shabby in the flip-flops, why don't you sit on the ground where your face is about even with everybody's feet that are smelly, sweaty, and nasty? He says, suppose, suppose this happens. He says, if, if, if you do this, have you not made distinctions above yourself? Have you, have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil, your Bible may say motives like mine does, it's literally with evil reasonings, with deliberate and intentional thought which is bent in a way that is wrong, and ha have you not created, have you not made an evaluation based on non-biblical basis about the worth and value of another? Rather than fulfilling what Jesus says in John 7, where you're to judge with righteous judgment, you've judged according to appearance. And you have shown yourselves to be biased and favorites towards the man who looks rich and against the one of humble circumstances of poor dependence. Now, church family, understand what this means for us today at the crux of all of the sermon today is the issue of partiality. And we as followers of Christ, if you are in fact in this place, saved by grace through faith and a personal response to Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done, then we have a responsibility in Christ as individuals and corporately as a local body, we have a responsibility to never play favorites. In fact, we must recognize and rid ourselves of partiality of making value and worth judgments based on the external appearance of others. Now we're going to break this down because there's a lot of ways. Here we see, we see a partiality that is based on a person's economic status. But before we go there, let me just make sure we know what partiality is not. Partiality does not mean that there are not different roles of leadership inside of a church. Well, because, Wes, you were selected as pastor. That means we're, we're part. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with roles. Partiality has nothing to do with roles. It, partiality does not mean that there are sin issues that we just need to let slide and not rebuke. Well, you're showing partiality because you're calling out my sin. No, Scripture says we're to call out each other's sin. Well, pastor, you're showing partiality for preaching on partiality and exposing my partiality. You're being partial. Well, all right, guilty as charged. Then God's partial because God always calls out our sin. Okay, partiality has nothing to do with calling out sin. Partiality does not mean that you are required by God to be best friends with every person you see in the room. That's impossible to have that many best friends. 
Partiality does not mean that there are not relationships where real boundaries have to be set. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. Partiality does not mean that certain roles of leadership, that are a certain level of maturity is required, that you're showing partiality by saying, sorry, you're not ready for that yet. There's not the maturity there. The reason that those are all found in Scripture. You're not showing partiality to actually be faithful to Scripture. No, partiality is when we look upon things of the external factor and we make a judgment of a person's worth and value and show them favoritism based on it. We can absolutely do it based on economics today, church family. We can do it. Man, we got to really reach that new family in town. Seven-figure job. Can you imagine what their tithe check is? Make sure to check on them several times a month. Oh, yeah, did we check on the widows, by the way? I know of a former football player that probably most of you in the room would know who he is and who he played for. Friends with somebody that I know who also played with him. They went to a large church in a large prominent city in our state. And this football player made a comment. He said, why is it, friend, that the only time I hear from your pastor is when there's a need for financial donations? We can absolutely play favorites economically. Oh, but church family, we can show partiality beyond economic status. We can show partiality on the basis of racial appearance. And understand There is a good portion of the church in America that has done this historically. You can come in and sit in this place because you look like me. You're not allowed to come in because you don't look like me. Or if you can come in, but you're going to sit in the balcony away from everybody. Oh, that's been a reality in our society. We can play partiality on the basis of age. Have we not seen churches who will do absolutely nothing to adapt and and change in methodology to reach and continue to reach the people younger and younger. At the same time, have we not seen churches that are driven so hard to only do what in theory reaches the younger that they kick out and show a partiality against the older? Yes, we can play partiality on the basis of age. We can play partiality on the basis of personal appearance. I remember being a high school student, long hair, being told, no, if you're going to play for our team, you better have that nice cut because that's what good, godly Christian boys look like. Besides the fact that half of our characters in the Bible had long hair and were good, godly people. (laughs) Besides the fact that I may have long hair, but on that field, I give it my all. I help people up off the ground, and I'm not out there cursing, but all your guys who look like good, godly Christian guys, they're out there trashing their witness for Christ. Oh, that pastor really knows his stuff. He's in a three-piece suit compared to that pastor who preaches in a T-shirt. We can show partiality on personal appearance. We can show partiality on the basis of personality. If we could just reach, and I'm being facetious here, understand, but this, was, this has been an idea in ministry. If we could just get into that high school, if we could just reach the quarterback, he's got an, just this great personality, charisma, leadership position. If we reach the quarterback, he'll, he'll win his, his girlfriend who's the head cheerleader. And next thing you know, the whole school will know Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is over here tugging on the hearts of the chess club. 
we can show partiality, church family, in so many different ways, regardless of the fact that it says in Romans 2, there is no partiality with God. He commands in Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be, part, you, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor, nor to defer to the great. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. Regardless of the fact that God does not look on the outward, but He says, I do not look on the appearance, but I look at the heart. Regardless of the fact that God says He delights to, to use the, 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 the weak, the foolish, the base things to shame those things which the world says are wise and powerful and mighty. Church family, we can show partiality when the reality is we serve a God who is not partial in any way. In fact, not only that, but amongst ourselves, it says this about ourselves in Christ. It says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, but now in Christ you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is what he says, that in Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, all of those external appearances, all of those external value and honor judgments that the world says are something to make distinctions between us, all of those in the blood of Christ are complete done. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are one in Christ. There is no one in this room, based on economic status, racial status, age status, personal appearance, personality, there is no one in this room who is of greater worth and honor than another. If we are in Christ, we are all the same in value and worth. So church family, we need to be clear today that as we read this, you go, I, I don't know that we've ever, you know, as I had a friend in college, she would probably, probably show dishonor to the rich person to show honor to the poor person. There's a lot of different ways. We say, ah, we're not doing that, but we can be showing partiality in so many ways. And if we're going to rid ourselves of it, church family, then the first step today is we've got to recognize it, and we need to repent from it. If all of a sudden there is partiality exposed in our hearts, we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. And not only that, but if possible, if there is one whom we have shown partiality to, we need to go and apologize to them. But we've got to recognize. Well, how do we recognize? Well, great question. He shows us in the passage. Look what he says. Pick up with me. Verse 5. Listen. By the way, that's an aorist imperative, meaning wake up. He writes to the church, he says, wake up and pay attention, my beloved brothers and sisters. He's not going off because he's filled with angst against them. These are his, his, his beloved, the people that he loves in Christ. He says, listen, those whom I love, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who personally oppress you and treat you unjustly? Is it not the rich who personally seize you against your will and drag you into the courts? Is it not they who personally, by choice, blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? See, church family, if we're going to recognize and repent and, and rid ourselves of partiality, it's going to take heeding heeding God's purpose and judgments. So here's what he says. He says, wake up. Wake up, church family. Wake up. Do, do you not recognize? Do you not see that God is, God is clear all throughout his word? What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the 
poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, do you not recognize that God has a special concern? He's already addressed this in the letter that, that one's economic status is not an exclusive sign of God's favor upon them. You can be wealthy as all get out, and you can say, God has blessed me, and it can be all about you. And you can be poor as all get out and shabby in the eyes of the world, and you can have the favor of God resting mightily upon you. No one has had more of the favor of God rest upon them than Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. And he said, even foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. So be clear today. Economic status in and of itself, and in light of a world where we preach the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, no. The gospel does not promise health, wealth, and prosperity this side of heaven. He said, but do you not know God's heart is for the poor, that, that, God, that, God's, that, God, that God has chosen, that God is to be rich in their richness in faith? It's, it's the richness is found inside of their faith, the richness of the salvation they have in faith. He says, they are honored by God, yet you fail to honor them. Do you heed God's purposes? Do you recognize where it says in Scripture the kinds of people that God uses? God doesn't use the charming and the magnanimous and, and, and the wonderful personality. God doesn't use the person who looks the part. God uses the humble. God uses the one who will yield. God uses the one that the world says there is no way that person could ever be a leader and do anything. And God says if that person will fall, I will use them to do exactly what I want to do. And it doesn't matter if all the forces of the enemy in the world line up against them, none will be able to stop my purpose. Do we understand his purpose? Do we understand his judgments? For these people, literally, they are, they are living without favor. They are facing economic disadvantage because of those who are wealthy over them, their employers. And then he says, when, when they walk in and, and you all of a sudden show this fixation and this, this enamored reality of the one who is rich, the one who is what, whatever it may be that you're partial to, do you not recognize it's those same people? They're the ones who are coming in and dragging you into court against your will. They're the ones who are speaking horrible things against the character of God. God. So why, why are, this doesn't even make sense. There is an absurdity behind the partiality. Just do you not recognize this? And church family, before you go, we wouldn't do that. I would never, I would never show partiality and defer to one who drags me in court. Well, church family, just think about our obsession with celebrity culture. How many of us live and move and breathe and we'll show partiality and come up with excuses for why whatever celebrity it is we admire and follow, why, why, well, it's not really as bad as they say it's not. Whether that be a movie star, a sports star, a politician, a social media guru. And I mean, literally, we're living in a day where we've got celebrities who are taking the precious word of our Lord to love your neighbor as themselves and applying it to things like abortion. We're literally living in a day where the blaspheme is, is as clear for us to see, yet we will still make excuses and, and show partiality in our hearts. It says, do you not see and recognize God's looking at this going, my judgments, it's absurd, but not only that, 
you think you're doing well, and maybe you say, well, yeah, we're just a little partial. No, a little bit goes a long way. Look what he says in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you are actively showing partiality, you are committing, you are putting into deliberate act sin, and you are convicted, you are found guilty by evidence, by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Here's what he says. You need to understand. Wake up, church family. See God's purpose. See, see the people upon whom God's favor really rests. See the people who are showing up, who are faithful, who are available, who are teachable, who are, who are willing to be discipled, who are hungry to know the Lord. See those people. See where God's favor is. Wake up. See God's judgment. There is an absurdity in your partiality, but also wake up and see the absurdity in God's judgment of going, oh, but look at all this other stuff we do so well, God. We're not really, we're not really. He says, when it comes to the law, and he uses some different terms in there, and time prohibits us from getting too far in the weeds. But he says the royal law, meaning that law which comes from the king. What did Jesus say were the two greatest commandments? What did our king say are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord God with all of your being, and second, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love there is agape. Love not because of what they make you feel. Love not because of what they can offer. Love because of the value that the, the one true lover, that, that God himself, the one whom is love, love because of the value that he has seen and placed upon that person, not because of what they can do, not because of what they can offer, but because they are made in his image and if they are in Christ, saved by his blood. You love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Jesus answered that in the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is everyone around you. You love unconditionally your neighbor as yourself. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as what you would have done unto you. He says, this, this is the royal law that, that we are to love, that all of, all of ultimately the social obligations of the believer in Christ are bound up in love your neighbor as yourself. But don't think if you're out here doing all this community service, if you're over here going on these mission trips, but then inside of your church, you are showing deliberate and intentional partiality to certain groups, don't think you're off the hook. Because in the old law, if you transgressed one thing, you were guilty of the whole thing. And that's his example. I didn't commit adultery. Well, great. If you didn't commit adultery, but you committed murder, you're not guilty of one rule. You're guilty of it all. And you say, well, but pastor, we're not under the old law. You're right. We're not under the law. Verse 12 says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, which we've seen prior to this back in chapter one. You're right, church family. We're not under the old law, which we didn't fully understand, which those who were under it didn't fully understand, which didn't have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of. No, you're right, church family. We are under the new law, the law of liberty, the law of spirit and life, Romans chapter 8. We are under the law where God himself has come and taken residence inside of us, and according to Jeremiah 31, he has taken this new law, and he has written it on our heart, a heart that is living and alive. He has, according to Hebrews 10, taken this new law, and 
and he has written it on our mind. And in this new law, I have been freed from all the shackles of sin, and I actually possess the ability to know and experience the love of God and follow his law of freedom out of love. You're right, church family. We're not under the old law. We're under a much higher law. And we better be careful to not think that if we play partiality. Let me give you some examples. Well, my, my choosing only people who really, you know, I'm going to only, as youth pastor, I'm going to only go after the quarterbacks. You know, people who've really got leadership potential. I may be a little partial, but, but I'm discipling them. But I'm, I'm talking to them about Jesus. Never mind the fact that they're really flaky and they don't really have any desire and they've clearly, it's just for what they can get. But, but I'm doing, oh, but I'm also having my quiet time. I'm having, listen, that's great you're having your quiet time. That's great you're praying. But it's wrong that half the students in your student ministry don't feel comfortable coming to you because they know you play favorites. This is like churches that are aging out and are, and are dying quite literally who go, oh, we, we refuse to make any changes and adaptions to try to reach and disciple the young, those younger people. They like this. They, as I saw one person this week, stop complaining about the younger people. Start loving them. Start discipling them. Start getting in their lives. No, but we're, we're not going to make any changes to reach them. No, but oh man, we sure, we sure sing great praise choruses to Jesus. That's like the younger churches who are foolish who go, oh man, we've got a great praise band. We turn the lights down low. We got people raising their hands. We sure sing great praises even though we have driven out and alienated every elder person that could come to church. Church family, when we show partiality in part, understand we don't get to pick and choose and play favorites with sin. Great if you're living well over here. That's awesome. Praise God. But if it is exposed that we are living in partiality as an individual or as a church, then we need to recognize it, we need to repent of it, and we need to understand and see God's purpose and His judgment. But we also, in understanding the law of liberty, need to speak and act. Go back to verse 12 with me. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says this. He says if, if we need to recognize and rid ourselves of partiality, we're going to do that by heeding God's purpose and His judgments. We're also going to do it by living out the law of liberty. By living out the law of liberty by this, by this salvation we have in Christ where we have experienced the mercy of God. And remember what mercy is, church family. Mercy has to do with a person's need. It's, it's sitting from, from a place of security and, and looking down and, and seeing someone who is in great need, who is hurting, who is without, and being stirred and filled and moved with compassion to act, to come down, to act, and to, to address their sorrow, their pain, their hurt. For we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, rich in His mercy. Church family, we who have been touched by mercy, me, we who 
didn't even walk into the heavenly courts in shabby clothes. We didn't walk in because we didn't care. We were by nature in rebellion. We didn't even bother to show up to the building. No, instead God, driven by great mercy and compassion for the men and women made in His image, sent His Son. Jesus stepped down out of heaven, took on flesh, lived the life that we failed to live, endured all of the hate, all of the persecution for living that life, went to the cross, and as painful as the cross was, it's incomparable to the fact that for six hours He drank the eternal wrath of God, hell, every last drop on our behalf. Not just our behalf, but it says in 1 John, for the entire world, every man, woman, boy, girl who ever lived. It doesn't mean everyone will be saved. Only those who, who choose to respond to Him in repentance and faith will, will know the experience of that mercy, washing their crimson stain as white as snow. But we who have experienced that, who've responded in repentance and faith, who've been saved by grace and received it through faith, church, family, we who have responded like that must speak and act. How should we speak and act towards one another? In love, loving each other out of our love for God, which is a reflection of our understanding of His love for us. How should we speak and act towards one another? In mercy. In mercy, if we are driven to love one another, if we, are, if we are driven to act in mercy, this is what it will be. And it, and it says, and it's an interesting little statement, judgment to the, will be merciless to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's simply what he's getting at. He's saying, as a believer, one day your life will be evaluated by God. Not to determine if you go to heaven or not. That's, that is done and settled in the blood of Jesus at the moment of salvation. But our lives, as those who have been saved, will be evaluated by Christ, and we will stand before and give account. And in, in a different way of wording what Paul says in Galatians, every person will reap what they sow in that sense. And ultimately, it's all for this purpose, for the life of the believer. Let me be clear. If you're in Christ... There's no works-based salvation here. It's not saying show mercy and you'll earn mercy. That's not. That's, that defeats the purpose of mercy and grace. What he's saying is this. You have an opportunity when you see people to either see them through eyes of mercy or to see them through eyes of judgment. Now, eyes of mercy doesn't excuse sin because God acted in mercy and dealt with our sin. What I mean by judgment? To make an external value and worth an opinion on a person. And what he's saying is this. Choose mercy. Choose mercy, church family. When someone walks in and you go, ooh, I, I don't know about that person. See them in the mercy of God. When, you, when you're out and about and you see a neighbor and you go, wow, I just, I just don't... I don't get them. See them through the mercy of God. Church family, how do we rid ourselves of partiality? It's going to start by speaking and acting out as ones who live the law of liberty. It's going to mean seeing each other through the eyes of God. How God values. How God sees. It's going to be showing each other honor. It's going to mean learning other. If you serve in a position of leadership over a child or a, or a teenager or, or a college student, or even if you're a grow group leader for adults, understand this. Inevitably for all of us, there are people we more naturally connect with than others. That's not good or bad. We're all just wired different. 
but do not allow people you connect with more naturally to be an excuse to not go out of your way to learn how to know and love and serve everyone that's been placed in your charge. So many of the stories of people who are deconstructing their faith today, while, while, while you cannot reject Christ on behalf of the failures of His followers, so many are riddled with places. Yeah, I grew up in church and I was treated like an outcast. I grew up in church, I've got some special needs, I'm high functioning Asperger's, no one really got me. Instead what they did is they, they wrote me off, they teased me, they didn't try to get to know me or, or as I heard one person say, hey, just, just tell me what your kid's into, I just don't get your kid. Church family, there is no excuse for that kind of partiality. Go love them, go learn, go care for them. See Him through the eyes and value of God, even if it's hard. Choose mercy. Listen, when God looks down on His opinion of people, you know what He doesn't do? He doesn't consult our opinions. He doesn't consult whether we think that person needs a makeover or not. He doesn't consult whether we think that kid at camp needs a bath or not. He doesn't consult whether we think that person could do more or not. He doesn't consult because he sees the heart and he knows what is there. Instead, we'd do well to consult him and see through his mercy. I have a friend that I knew in junior high. Then he moved. We reconnected in college out of nowhere. And keeping the story short, he grew up in a time unbelievably intelligent, IQ of 195. Now, if you're like me and you go, what's that even mean? Einstein was 160. That's what that means. If you have an IQ of 200, you're considered an immeasurable genius. No one can measure how smart you are. He was only there because his parents wanted him to have a, an experience. And when I met him, hadn't seen him in five years, a hardened, hardened heart against Christ, and even more so the church and Christians. Because he grew up in a time when there was very little attention given to Asperger's. He grew up in a time when most youth group philosophies were marked by reach the quarterback, play to the jocks. He grew up and had kids who said, we love Jesus and Jesus is awesome and we're going to treat you with an unjust partiality like dirt. Church family, the world is a mess. And I know every one of us in here has hardships we are all going through. And I'm not overlooking any of that. But understand, there are countless souls like my friend. And prior to some of the conversations that he and I were able to have, his perception of Jesus was not of the impartial, merciful, glorious Lord and Savior, but was one of partiality and cruelty because how of the people who claimed His name acted. Church family, the song goes, they will know us by our love. But if our love is partial, they will not know us by His love.
So church family, as we live, as we move, as we breathe in the midst of this world, may we be people who do so displaying the impartial mercy of Christ, loving our neighbors as ourselves, heeding his purpose and judgments, recognizing and where needing, repenting of any partiality we may have. Because Jesus is on his throne. We are his ambassadors. And we are here for such a time as this. And may our lives echo into eternity with what Christ has done in us and through us. But understand the seriousness of if we're going to follow Him, we don't get to pick and choose. We follow the one who built the first church on the backs of backwater fishermen, hated, despised taxmen, and zealot who would have been considered a terrorist in the eyes of the Roman government. He didn't go after the, the popular, the major. No, he went after the heart in mercy. May that be us, church family. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a weighty for some, this may even expose hurts and pains where they've experienced partiality. And Lord, I do hope it's clear today through your word, you are not partial. You don't play favorites. It says about each person in this world, you think about us more than the grains of sand in existence. Which means there's never a moment you're not thinking. Jesus, it says you didn't take on the sin of those whom you preferred. It says you took on the entire world's sin. And Jesus, we who have experienced your mercy, may we be a people who live out your mercy well. God, may we be known as a church, First Baptist Pflugerville, may we be known as a church who when people walk in, we can truly say, come just as you are. We will love you. We will care for you. We will absolutely tell you truth. We're not going to affirm things that God doesn't affirm, but we will honor and respect you and treat you with the value and dignity that God himself made you with. God, may we be known as that, not so we can just be known for something great, but so that we can truly be known for your love and glory. God, may we not miss in the hustle and bustle and the hard reality of life today, Lord, just like these believers 2,000 years ago, may we not miss your call to be a church of mercy and not a church of partiality. Jesus, as you move, Holy Spirit, as you touch hearts in this room and watching online, may we respond with open hands. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.